take a little trip behind the page now to look at how this uh, enduring fictional figure first came to be and how it kind of changed comic books and where it all came from. Um, we need to start with Bob Kane, um, the credited creator of Batman, co-creator in most people's minds. Mm. Uh, Bob Kane is someone that studied um, art at um, Cooper Union, and he joined the Max Fleischer studio as a trainee animator um, oh. in the yeah in the mid nineteen thirties. And then by 1936, he'd entered into the actual the, the industry of the of comic book art or comic strip art. Um, he's a freelancer, um, contributing a lot of material to a comic book called "Wow, What a Magazine." <laughs> um, now, before the appearance of Superman and Batman, comic strips and comic books were really all about um, a lot of. Uh, comedy love talking animal comic strips um as well as some adventurous heroes and detectives um and among bob Kane's work there was a uh, talking animal um strip called peter pup uh, about a talking dog um and then he worked for national comics which would eventually become dc comics and he he contributed some work to a uh, oscar the gumshoe for detective comics and Professor Doolittle for Adventure Comics. Um, and then 1939, the start of 1939, Superman appears on Action Comics and everything changes. And the editors at National Comics are hot to trot for superheroes. They need some more of these. Can we get something that's like Superman? We need more Superman. And out goes the call. Um, we need more costumed uh, heroic characters that have superpowers and do all this flying around and stuff. Can we get another Superman? And Bob Kane has what I would call the visual idea for something he calls the Batman. So Kane has admitted this and admitted this. He said, and it's quite right, that a big influence on his idea was a movie called The Bat Whispers. It's a 1930 mystery film based on a 1920s play called The Bat. And in this, there's a mysterious criminal by the name of The Bat who eludes police and steals jewels and holds people at, gun, at gunpoint. And he wears um, a domino mask over his eyes. Do you know what those are, Will? Like the one that Robin wears. Oh. That's no. called a domino mask. It domino, just goes, yeah, it yeah, just goes yeah. over the eyes. See, I always call them a robber mask because, you know, the oh, mask old-fashioned oh. robbers, robbers wear for some reason. Uh, well, the robber's mask is actually a band that goes all the way around the back of the head. <sighs> right, okay. A domino okay. mask... Just is just over the eyes, and you could take it off like a pair of spectacles and put it on. Um, so it doesn't tie on at the back or anything. I, I so never understood how that was a mask to hide your identity. I never understood well, how. How does a man fly? We don't need to know these things. They're just <laughs> conventions of the form. Um, so he wears a domino mask over his eyes, and he has a, a, wings which are really a cape attached to his arms that look, but they look like large bat wings. Um, Bob Kane wanted to recreate this visual image but mix it with aspects of the swashbuckling masked Zorro mm. to make the character a dashing and romantic hero. Kane's initial Batman design is virtually unrecognisable from the character that we know today. His Batman wears only a domino mask around the eyes. So... His Batman's whole head is completely revealed, including yeah. his yellow blonde hair. <laughs> there are not a cape, but bat-like wings 
emanating from his back that would flap. Um, and he wears an all red costume, mm. all red with black pants. I've seen a um, picture of it, and it's not good. But Bob Kane is only an artist. To get Batman onto the page, he needed a writer. And this is where we meet Bill Finger. Now, Bill Finger was a talented, aspiring writer and a part-time shoe salesman. He had met Bob Kane at a party. um, And when he learned what Bob Kane did, Bill Finger managed to wrangle himself a job ghostwriting some of of, uh, Bob Kane's comic strips. Um, So Bob Kane would sort of say, we need to do a new... you know, adventure of Peter Pop. Bill Finger would write it. Bob Kane would pay Bill Finger, and then he'd pass that script and work off as his own, Ugh. and say, "I came up with all of this." It's perfectly. It's a. It's a. It's a perfectly standard part of the comic trade at that time. Um, after seeing Bob Kane's Batman design, Bill Finger makes crucial and important changes. It's Bill Finger who suggests giving the character a black cowl that covers the whole head but the mouth. And that the cowl has pointed ears. Bill Finger suggests ditching the wings and replacing them with a large cape that could look like wings. He suggests getting rid of the red costume um, and making the character wear black and grey with a prominent bat symbol on the chest to simulate a little bit like how superman has the symbol on his chest Mm. essentially bill finger is responsible for the enduring design of the batman um finger also creates batman's secret identity the rich playboy bruce wayne who pretends to be a coward and a fop um in much the same way that uh, don diego de la vega pretends in the zorro stories and movies um that were very very popular douglas fairbanks playing the role While Zorro is a clear influence, it cannot be avoided that both Bob Kane and Bill Finger borrowed heavily from a very popular character of the 1930s, The Shadow. The Shadow appeared in Pulp Fiction stories, text only, and radio appearances as well, published in Detective Story magazine. And The Shadow stories lay the entire groundwork for Batman and all the similar masked adventurers and vigilantes who would come out in Batman's wake. The Shadow is a detective and a vigilante who uses a terrifying masked persona as he stalks the night, hunting down criminals and scaring them into submission. He has a secret identity of a wealthy playboy who gallivants all over town. He has sidekicks. He has informants that work with him on the police force. He has gadgets. He has a badass car. Just about all the elements that are central to the Batman's success. Bill Finger wrote the uh, initials, the, the initial script for the first Batman story um, with Bob Kane providing the art. Kane shows the Batman to um, an editor at National Comics called uh, Vin Sullivan. And without Bill Finger being involved, editor Vin Sullivan promptly wants to run Batman, make it a feature, put it on the front cover of Detective Comics, um, and he negotiates a deal with Bob Kane that does not include Bill Finger. Um, as Bill Finger is just a ghost writer, according to Bob Kane. Mm. Just a ghost writer. <laughs> Technically, there's no need for Bob Kane to include Bill Finger in this deal. Um, Finger works as an employee. And there we go. Kane, Bob Kane signs away ownership of the character 
In the same way Siegel and Shush did it with Superman, he signs away ownership of the character to National Comics in exchange for, among other things, um, compensation, royalties, and a mandatory byline on all Batman comics that he's recognised as the creator. It will say, uh, to begin with it doesn't, but, but eventually it appears, Batman created by Bob Kane. One name and that's it. And because of the deal that Bob Kane made, Finger receives none of the same recognition or compensation. Batman is a smash hit character from day one. The front cover on Detective Comics of him swinging down with a hoodlum under his arm, <laughs> the costume, the mask, the, the cape that looks like wings, it's just sensational. And um, the following year, he receives his own solo title, um, 1940, whilst continuing to be the, the, the feature attraction in Detective Comics. By that time, Detective Comics is the top-selling and most influential um, kind of uh, publisher as they've become... They, sorry, Detective Comics is the name of the comic and it's now become the name of the publisher. National Comics has just gone, we're going to call ourselves Detective Comics from now on. Um, and so DC Comics is the most influential publisher in the industry because they've got Batman and they've got Superman. The two superheroes are theirs. <laughs> they've got their first and they did it and there we go. They're the cornerstone of the company's success and they're the cornerstone of comic book success as well uh, and initially batman is written in the style of the pulp detective stories that were very popular of the age mm. pulp, pulp stories written for teens and young adults and this influence is very evident because batman um shows little remorse um yeah he uh he has no real sympathy for for the the gangsters, the hoodlums, and the the people, the criminals that he the, that he fights off. And there's an awful lot of him fighting what would be called maybe mysticism. There are vampires, there are werewolves. There's kind of a lot of this kind of stereotyped, um, racially charged kind of um, <laughs> Eastern mysticism of the time. Oh, like, that was so yeah. comic common with those comics back then, wasn't it? They always had that. Yeah, it features in Sherlock Holmes stories as well. Mm. There's an awful lot of um, some sort of yogi or some sort of monk from the east of the world comes in and has some sort of uh, hypnotic power or this, that, the other. Mm. And then as the 40s progress, pulp stories become less and less popular as comic book stories become more and more popular. DC finds it more profitable and easier to market Batman towards children. So during the 1940s, the tone of Batman changes. It becomes much less violent, much less grim. The pulp overtones are washed away, almost. The Joker becomes more of a prankster and less of a cold-blooded killer. The early kind of pulp portrayal of Batman starts to soften in uh, April of 1940, when they introduce Robin, Batman's sidekick or junior. Um, and he's uh, introduced on the suggestion of, you guessed it, Bill Finger, um, <laughs> who says the stories would be a hell of a lot easier to write if Batman had a Watson-like figure yes. for him to explain his deductions and the intricacies of the plot to. Mm. The thought balloon had not been invented yet. <laughs> The, the idea, yeah, the idea of being able to see a character's thoughts did not exist 
which is why sidekicks were really important because everything had to be done via speech. Ah, that makes absolute sense. Yeah, I've actually read some of the early Batman comics. I remember the first one. I think Joker basically kills the mayor, if I remember right. Mm. Yeah. So with the introduction of Robin, sales nearly double right from the get-go. Um, Robin is a hugely important part of Batman. Um, the appeal that, they, that that having a child involved has to children audiences is massive. Um, and in the years following kind of World War II, um, DC Comics adopts a very different post-war editorial direction um, where... The social commentary of Superman is virtually eliminated um, and both Superman and Batman go in this kind of light-hearted juvenile fantasy direction, which Robin is a big part of. Um, and uh, the bleak and menacing world that the the uh, the Batman stories of the early 40s presented us with are gone. Um, <laughs> and Batman becomes this respectable citizen he is deputized, a deputized kind of uh, law officer, and he becomes quite a paternal figure with with Robin there as his almost child. Um, in 1945, Batman and Robin travel through time uh, and have an adventure <laughs> in ancient Rome. Something that is you would not believe from reading the very first couple of um, Batman stories. Yeah, and the trend once you get to the 1950s in comic books is science fiction in a big way. Mm. That's the popular trend. And Batman quickly shifts into that direction. Gone are the gangsters, the killers, the blackmailers of the 40s. In the 1950s, Batman is regularly battling outlandish robots and aliens from other worlds. <laughs> the, the, the popularity of comic books in the 50s was curtailed by a, a moral panic that swept America and Great Britain. Comic books were branded perverse and accused of turning children into an adolescence into criminals and delinquents. <laughs> and some of the criticism was warranted, as we've looked at. There was some very... All comic books were unregulated. There was no oversight into what was put in them. And some of them presented gory blood, violence, and a level of sexuality that's inappropriate for children. And yet mm. any child could pick them up, buy them, and take them home with their Mickey Mouse comic. Um, but psychiatrist Frederick Wertham published a book called Seduction of the Innocent in 1954. And this led the moral panic. And amongst mm. a number of outlandish accusations against comic books, Wertham alleged that Batman and Robin were a gay couple. <laughs> And that the comic books that featured them were trying to, in his words, not mine, trying to corrupt children and push them towards homosexuality. There was a massive outcry. There were book burnings um, in America and in England. America, there were special sub Senate subcommittee hearings were convened to investigate the connection between delinquency and criminal behavior in children and the comic books that they read. Wertham's work, work in inverted commas, <laughs> is is now widely criticised and and no one thinks anything of it. Um, there's a um, Carol L. Tilly um, wrote a paper on Destruction of the Innocent um, that said that Wertham manipulated, overstated, compromised, and fabricated evidence. He is widely discredited in this particular area. Um, 
Anderson, uh, quite interestingly, Andy, Andy Medhurst wrote um, a 1991 essay called Batman, Deviance and Camp. And he wrote in that that Batman is interesting to gay audiences because he is one of the very first fictional characters to be attacked on the grounds of his presumed homosexuality. And of course, we need to all remember that these, this kind of witch hunt that took place over things like that in the 50s is, of course, all tied up in the, the kind of the communist witch hunts that would uh, take place where people were blackballed from the industry. Um, the idea of being connected to homosexuality in the 1950s would ruin lives, ruin careers. It was an incredibly awful time, a small-minded, ignorant time for everybody. Mm. DC Comics' response to this moral panic was to push Batman more into the wacky and bizarre sci-fi area to almost completely remove gangsters from the stories because that was a big concern, to almost completely remove physical violence from the stories. When we've gone back and looked at kind of early Spider-Man and Marvel comics, one thing that I've, I've harped on is that there's not a lot of fighting that goes on. There's a lot of tricking the opponent and pushing them into a well and you know, something boxed them on the head. And that was all of all of comics kind of uh, beyond, you know, after this moral panic came out. Like, violence had to be really taken out of comic books. And Batman was, um, big, you know, a big victim of this as well. A major recurring new character in the 1950s was a magic imp from another dimension called Batmite, who was Batman's biggest fan. <laughs> and similar to the super Superman villain Mr. Mixed Expedilix, Batmite would uh, was a small childlike man in an ill-fitting Batman costume, and he would use his magic powers to create strange and ridiculous events so that he could see his hero in action. Um, <laughs> you just you you would not believe it from reading the first ten years of this character. Oh, but DC's response also was to immediately give Batman and Robin female love interests that allowed them to downplay any homosexual allegations. Right away, this was a business response. DC Comics introduced Batwoman to be Batman's new love interest and Batgirl to be Robin's love interest. They also introduced a dog called Ace the (laughs) Bathound who fought crime wearing a little mask. So no one would recognise him. No one would recognise the dog! And this group of characters was called the Bat Family, as DC tried to loudly proclaim that they were making wholesome family comic books. Anything you may have heard or read about there being homosexuality or, or any kind of corruption going on is that not look, it was a family. They're men holding hands with women and they have a dog. It's a good, wholesome comic book. Gays don't have dogs. <laughs> Ridiculous. By the time Marvel <laughs> Comics were firing on all cylinders in the mid-60s, Batman's comic book sales are sinking fast. Mm. The Bat family might have saved Batman's image from closed-minded PR scandal, but those kind of stories and elements just weren't appealing to readers at all. The Batman comics were handed over um, to the control of editor Julie Schwartz, a towering figure in comic books. Um, we discussed him in the in the Superman episode because he revolutionized Superman and that came after this. At the time, he just revived and revitalized characters like the Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, um, as well as helping to create the Justice League of America. 
Um, Schwartz took control of the Batman comics and immediately jettisoned all of the silly aspects of the 50s. The space aliens, the robots, the time travel, <laughs> all that's gone. The characters like Batmite and Ace the Bathound, gone. Um, and, and Schwartz was also responsible for giving Batman something that would last forever. Changing the look of Batman almost forever. Any idea what it might be? Um, I have no idea. He put the yellow oval behind the bat symbol. Right, okay. For the very okay. first time. A small change, maybe, but it... And also, that's kind of around the time that yeah, the, the, it works so much better on the kind of the bluer bat costume, that yellow oval um, on the chest. That would become such an enduring, iconic logo um, for decades and decades to come. Um, and Schwartz introduced changes designed to make Batman try and feel a bit more contemporary and to try and return him to more detective-orientated stories as opposed to magic imps from the fifth dimension. Um Sales of the Batman comic spiked when the Adam West TV show came out in the 1960s, 1966 that came out. Um, and the comic books tried to keep as much of the same campy fun tone as the TV show. Schwartz wasn't able to move them, the comics into much of a serious direction because it was clear that people wanted to read camp Batman stories, you know, fun-loving, over-the-top stuff. And so he had to go in that direction. That was the mandate from his bosses. So Alfred dies... And is re- or, yeah, he dies. He definitely dies, and is replaced by Dick Grayson's Aunt Harriet to match the TV series. Um, uh. Barbara Gordon is introduced as Batgirl, the new Batgirl. She was created kind of in tandem, I think. Um, and she may have appeared in comic books first, but the it was under a TV mandate because they wanted a female, you know, character for the for the TV show. Mm. Um, but the TV series ends in 1968, after which Batman sales go back to being pretty terrible. They plummet once again. So in 1969, this editor, Julie Schwartz, ushers in perhaps the biggest change in the history of Batman stories. Dick Grayson is written out of the comics. Ooh. He, mainly, he leaves mm. for college. He's grown up. He's now college age. He's not a little kid anymore. Off he goes to college. Bruce Wayne and Alfred close up Wayne Manor and leave. And they relocate. They leave the Batcave behind. They relocate to a penthouse apartment in the middle of Gotham City, which would be the base of operations for Batman throughout the 70s. Um, and it's a move. The, the Batmobile changes completely into a stripped back coupe, um, two seater. It's a move to establish a stripped down, back to basics atmosphere after the campiness of the last fifteen years had left quite a bad taste in readers' mouths. Yeah. And Julie Schwartz puts Batman in the hands of a dynamic new duo that transformed Batman in the seventies. Writer Denny O'Neill and artist Neil Adams. They'd already made history working together on revitalizing Green Lantern and Green Arrow and ushering in what I've talked about a few times on this podcast, something we call the Bronze Age of comic books. The, mm. the Batman in the 40s is the golden age of comic books, the yeah. earliest age. The 50s stuff, the silliness, that's the Silver Age. Gotcha. As we get into the 1970s, we start to get the, 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 the Bronze Age. And Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams were part of maybe ushering that in. The, the, the Bronze Age is typified by 
darker tones in stories, a lot more social awareness and social stories. They did a lot of that on Green Lantern and Green Arrow. Um, and they get Batman back to the character's darker roots, dealing with dangerous criminals and violently insane villains. They O'Neill and Adams create Rese Ghoul. Um, mm. They revive Two-Face and the Joker, who haven't been seen for years. And they make them, instead of idiot pranksters, they make them major violent threats and badass villains again. Um, Man Bat is introduced for the first time. Oh, I love Man Bat. Another thing that typifies the Bronze Age, the 70s, is um, supernatural characters coming out like morbius and vampires and um things like that and so man bat fits into that mm. um denny o'neill's batman is the, a complex character for the first time ever batman in the golden age is you know he's a guy he puts on a mask and he beats up criminals there's no psychology or complexity to the character in the silver age he's kind of silly and camp and weird denny o'neill is almost like the first person to write this character seriously to to bring a level of sophistication and maturity to try and write bruce wayne and batman he creates a character full of conflicts and contradictions his relationship with dick grayson becomes incredibly strained his relationship with catwoman is is very difficult his war on crime is portrayed as something akin to like a compulsion um for the first time we, we start to see the trauma that uh, that his his horrible origins have on him rather than just it's a flashback and here he is driving a car now we see emotion being wrapped up in his feelings for his dead parents mm. so a darkness is introduced to batman in the 70s a darkness introduced to his personality that had never existed before this 1970s run from O'Neill and Adams is the most influential set of stories in the history of Batman, and it's influenced every movie and TV adaptation that, that followed. They are rightfully known as the men who saved Batman, because without them, the character could easily have fallen into obscurity. We've seen it happen before. We think the X-Men are, you know, some of the most popular mainstream characters going, but they got cancelled because mm. the sales weren't good. And, they, you know, you have to have a great writer come in and a great artist to come in and save them. Comic historian uh, Les Daniels observed that O'Neill's interpretation of Batman as a vengeful, obsessive-compulsive, which he modestly described as a return to the roots, was actually an act of creative imagination that has influenced every subsequent version of The Dark Knight. This is where that personality that we now associate so much with Batman comes from. This is where the character is perhaps interesting beyond the visual flair for the very first time. Mm. The 1980s, as we're coming up to the, this movie being released, is, is easily the most important era in the history of Batman. Yes, at the very, very end, we get this movie. But with the rise of comic book shops, DC Comics is now able to make comic books specifically for older, mature comic book fans nice. in a way they never could before. Instead of having to carefully balance an audience of young adults and children. So in 1986, DC releases a short story, a short collection of issues called The Dark Knight Returns. Hey. In which writer-artist Frank Miller imagines a future where a grim and violent Batman comes out of retirement in his 50s, doing a dirty Harry impression and takes great <laughs> joy 
in causing pain to the criminals who have seized his city. The gorgeous artwork, as well as the intensity of the story, sent shockwaves through the industry. It's a revitalized, reimagined idea of Batman. And it gained incredible reviews from mainstream publications like Time magazine. Mm. And the Dark Knight Returns is incredibly popular, selling close to a million copies, and gets the kind of like reviews by mainstream publications that no regular comic book would ever get. The same year, DC Comics completely reboots its entire universe and timeline in the wake of the crisis on Infinite Earths. And so a brand new continuity is introduced and established for every character, including Batman. And based on the success of The Dark Knight Returns, DC hires Frank Miller to create a new and updated origin story for Batman called Year One, in which Miller moves Batman as far away from Batmite and <laughs> Ace the Bat Hound and robots and aliens as possible and gives him a modern, edgy, urban origin that could not have been further from the 50s and the 60s. Because of the deal Bob Kane made, Bill Finger does not receive any recognition or compensation for this character. He doesn't receive the kind of jobs that you can get if you're publicly acknowledged as the co-creator of Batman. Bill Finger created the design of Batman. He created Bruce Wayne, Commissioner Gordon, the Batcave, the Batmobile. He co-created the Joker and Catwoman, Batman's tragic origin backstory, to name just a few of the contributions he made to the character. And yet he is not recognised as co-creator. As this information became available to the public... When the media was interested in Batman at the 60s TV show, Bill Finger spoke publicly about how he felt he should be recognised as the co-creator. Bob Kane addressed this, writing an open letter in 1965 that was published, in which he says, The trouble with being a ghostwriter or artist is that you must remain rather anonymously without credit. However, if one wants the credit, then one has to cease being a ghost or a follower. Mm. and instead become a leader. Incredibly disrespectful. In 1989, more than a decade after Bill Finger's death, Bob Kane's trying to change the uh, tract of his approach now. And he wrote, Now that my longtime friend and collaborator is gone, I must admit that Bill never received the fame and recognition he deserved. Ugh. He was an unsung hero. I often tell my wife, if I could go back 15 years before he died, I would like to say, I'll put your name on it now. You deserve it. But the point is, Bob Kane never did do that. He no. never told Bill Finger personally that he was the uh, co-creator. He never did it publicly. In fact, he went out of his way to denigrate Bill Finger to call him a ghostwriter and a follower. If uh, Bob, I'm Just uh, give me a minute, mate. Sorry. Bob Kane died in 1998 with a fortune between five and ten million dollars. He's buried at Forest Lawn Cemetery in the Hollywood Hills alongside the rich and the famous. Bill Finger died in poverty in 1974. The co-creator of Batman died in poverty in 1974 Ooh. and was buried in an unmarked grave at a potter's field because he didn't have enough money for a proper burial. 
Thanks for joining us as we revisit some of our favourite moments from Marvel vs. Marvel. Don't forget our full-length episodes are jam-packed with hours of Marvel trivia, behind the page, behind the scenes, and comic book Marvel history. Marvel.